If you've got a Bible, open to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 is where we're going to be this morning. And I've had this question rattling around in the back, back of my mind here for the last week or so as I've been working through this text and praying through this text as far as what God would have me share with us this morning as a church. And this is the question that's been rattling around in the back of my mind, is will this church, will Sabine Creek Fellowship, will our church, will it be a mirage or an oasis in the midst of a thirsty world? Right? Will it be a mirage or an oasis? It's one of the two, okay? It's going to be one of the two. And the question is, which one will it be? Now, a mirage, if you've ever been dr- driven on a long-distance trip during the heat of the summer, perhaps you look out on the horizon, it looks like the highway that you're driving down, you're about to drive into a large body of water. Right? That's a mirage. It's not a hallucination. It's an actual optical illusion that takes place out on the horizon as the light refracts through air in particular ways that causes you to see something that's not in actuality there, but you can actually see it. It's not a hallucination. It's a mirage. In fact, if you're traveling through the desert and you look out on the horizon and you see that body of water, and you're parched and you're thirsty and you're longing for something to drink as you get closer and closer and closer and you realize that thing continues to be far off in the distance or it's non-existent at all, it leaves you disappointed with nothing but that sandy parched taste in your mouth. But if it's an oasis in the midst of the desert, a place of fertile land where there is water, where there is a place for refreshment, as you arrive, you feel refreshed, that parched taste in your mouth goes away. And the question that has been rattling around the back of my mind is this, will this church, will we be a mirage to a thirsty world or will we be an oasis to a thirsty world? Will we be a place when people arrive and they walk into the doors of Sabine Creek Fellowship and they begin to get into the lives of people who are part of our fellowship, they begin to get to know people who are part of our church, will they find us to be the same as what they're fleeing from in the world? Will they find the same kind of competition here in the church as they found out in the world? Will they find the same kind of infighting here in the church as they found in relational context out in the world? Will they find the same kind of backbiting in the church as they found out in the world. Will we be a mirage or will we be an oasis? Will they find gossip in the same way they found gossip out in the world? Will they find a lack of merciful deeds amongst God's people in the same way they found a lack of merciful deeds outside the context of God's people? Will they find here in the church the kind of one-and-done mentality that refuses forgiveness whenever someone's been wrong? Because out in the world, and you get one shot, dude, and that's it. It's one and done. You, you wounded me. You wronged me. I'm not willing to extend forgiveness. Will they find that same kind of mentality within the context of the church? Will they find the same kind of mentality that signs off on multi-year friendships with several words in a text message? What will they find in the church? Will they find a mirage or will they find an oasis? Will they walk into the doors of the church and walk out leaving as dry and parched and thirsty as whenever they walked in? That's the question that's been rattling around the back of my mind over the course of the last week. And that's the question, uh, one of the the things I think James helps us with in this text this morning that we're going to dig into in James chapter 3 is what kind of experience will people find in the world? Because Jesus has given us a mission, hasn't he? He said, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them things that I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you to empower you to do this, but go do it. 
And in order to do it, we've got to have something to offer to the world whenever they, are, when they turn from the world to the church, to God's people. What are we going to teach them? What are we going to model for them? What are we going to show them? Will we leave them just as thirsty as whenever they walked in or where they walk away feeling their thirst has been, par- been quenched? And my heart, my desire, I know the desire of our elders is for people to find this place to be a place of refuge, to be a place where their thirst is quenched and they don't walk away as parched as whenever they walked in. But if that's going to be the case, James says, it's going to take wisdom. It's going to take a particular kind of wisdom if we're to function as an oasis and not a mirage. So listen to what James has to say in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, as he writes these words. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James says if we're going to be an oasis... If we're going to be an oasis, it's going to require us to operate on the basis of wisdom, of wisdom. Now, what does James mean by wisdom here? What's he talking about? What is wisdom? Essentially, what wisdom is this. Wisdom is not just something that we discuss, but it's something that we display. It's something that we demonstrate. It's something that we show. We don't just say it. We show it. We don't just discuss it. We display it by our actions and conduct. If you look in verse 13, listen to what James has to say. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. In other words, how can you identify someone who's wise? How can you identify someone who's operating with wisdom? James doesn't say you can identify them in a small group because they always have the right answer. Right? When you sit down in a life group and they, they've always got the right answer to every doctrinal question or every practical question. James says you can't identify them that way. It doesn't work like that. James says the way that you know someone is wise is because they have a demonstration of the things they know to be true as they get pressed out into the actualities of their life, how they're living, what they're doing. He says their good conduct is what he, just, what he says in verse 13. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's his point. Is wisdom isn't something that we just discuss in a group context or with our families or with a trusted counselor, but wisdom is something that actually grows flesh and bone and takes action in the relational context in which God has planted us. And James says if we're going to be an oasis, we've got to begin to operate on the basis of wisdom of wisdom. James says it's good conduct. And in fact, that word that James translates, it's translated in the ESV as good conduct. Other translations say this. It says, by his beautiful lifestyle. The word good actually means beautiful, and the word conduct refers to something more than a one-off occurrence. In other words, it's not just a one-time event where they make a good choice or they act in an appropriate manner, but it's a consistent lifestyle that is beautiful before the world because it's honoring to God, and it's bringing unity and peace in the midst of God's people in His church. He says that is how you identify someone who's got wisdom, not by what they say, but by what they do. 
So wisdom is more than something that we discuss, but something that we demonstrate. Gregory the Great, one of the leaders in the Catholic Church, um, many centuries ago said this. He said, every preacher should give forth a sound more by his deeds than by his words, and rather by good living imprint footsteps for men to follow than by speaking, show them the way to walk in. He says, in other words, listen, he says, the way that you, you, you know someone that you want to follow is not just by what they say, but by what they do by what they do. Now, he's talking to preachers here, and so he's talking to people like me, right? And so when I read that this week, it's kind of pierced me to the heart, but I think the principle that he lays out here is applicable not just to preachers, but also to parents, and also to leaders, and also to anyone else who takes upon themselves a life group leader, a children's ministry worker, a student ministry volunteer, anyone else who steps into the, the, the realm of leadership in any capacity, He's saying what you're looking for in leaders is not just those who talk a good game, but those who actually live it, those who actually conduct themselves in accordance with what they know to be true. They live wisely. They live wisely, James says. So here's what this means. At least one thing, it means at least this one thing for us, right? It means that the proverbial saying, do as I say, not as I what? <laughs> do, just shows how, just how foolish you really are. Right? It's the opposite of wisdom. Whenever we say to our kids, right, do as I say, not as I do, or to somebody else in our relational sphere, do as I say, not as I do, we're just revealing the foolishness of our own hearts in those occasions. Because we can talk a really good game and we can discuss a whole lot about the value of saving more than we spend, right? Or, or having the, our financial output being less uh, than our financial input, but we can continue to max out credit cards all day long. But we can say, yeah, I know that it's wisdom says, right, don't spend more than you make, but your output can still be higher than your input. That's not wisdom. You might have some knowledge up here, but it's not, it's not, it doesn't become wisdom until it takes on flesh and bone. You begin to act on it. Or you might discuss a whole lot about the importance of reading the Bible, but you never crack its pages in your home. One of the things I appreciate about my wife is we rolled out the re Bible reading plan uh, early in January, and so almost, almost every morning, right, she, she needs Jesus too, right? So almost every morning, I see her sitting at the bar with her Bible open and that reading plan there, and she's reading it as our kids get out of bed and they come to the table for dinner, for breakfast, and they're seeing her reading her Bible, and she's quarantining that time off and, and, and reserving that. You can talk a lot about, you can discuss a lot about the value of reading Scripture, but never actually crack its pages in your home. You can discuss the importance of prayer, but never demonstrate it by getting on your knees before God. You can discuss the value of loving and serving others, but never demonstrate it by moving out towards someone who's in need. You can discuss the value, right? everyone can agree, yes, it's wise to be connected to God's people and in corporate worship on a consistent basis, to have fellowship, to rejoice in what God has done through song, to hear what God is, is, is calling us to through his word. But you, can, but you can say that it's wise to be a part of that corporate fellowship, but then every other, every other request or invitation trumps what God is doing in these walls on Sunday mornings. You can say that it's wise, but are you actually demonstrating that wisdom, displaying that wisdom by acting consistent with what you know to be true? And James says, if we're going to be the kind of oasis, if we're going to be the kind of oasis that my heart longs for and our elders' hearts long for, we're going to have to begin to act in accordance with wisdom and live what we know.
Now, there's two kinds of wisdom James talks about here. First of all, he talks about an earthly wisdom. And second of all, he talks about a heavenly wisdom. These two, he contrasts these two. Right? Because if wisdom is what we, the truth that we're operating in accordance with fleshed out into our lives, and there's two ways you can go about doing that. There's two sources of that wisdom. Either a very earthly source, or James says, a source that's from above, or a heavenly source. And look at how he contrasts the two. There he says there's these two kinds of wisdom, earthly and heavenly, and there's a difference in their source, in their character, and in their results. First of all, he says the difference in their source. You've got one that comes from above and one that comes from below. Okay, He says, essentially, you got one that is consistent with who God is and how God acts, and you got one that's consistent with who we are and how we act apart from him. It's earthly. It's ingrained in us. It's kind of the innate wisdom that we are born with. But he says, you also got one that comes down from above. It's heavenly wisdom based on who God is and how God acts. He says, there's also a difference in their character. He says, the heavenly wisdom, he says, is pure. There's a blamelessness about it, the way it conducts itself in the relational context that it finds itself in, particularly within the church. There's a blamelessness about it. It's peaceable, he says. It's peace-loving. It's another way of translating that. In other words, it's not out looking for a fight. It's not looking out to start trouble with somebody. Okay? So if a, if a fight comes to it, it might be ready and willing to take it on, but it's not out looking for one. It's not out trying to stir up dissension and stir up strife by the way that it acts. So it's peaceable. He says, in addition, it's gentle and it's open to reason. In other words, James is saying there's, there's a willingness to defer to other people whenever there's not a closed-handed theological issue at stake or a closed-handed moral issue at stake. It's open to reason and it's gentle in the way that it conducts itself. And even whenever there are closed-handed theological or moral issues at stake, it doesn't blast people over them. But rather, there's a gentleness about the way that those issues are discussed and those issues are addressed, James says. He says, in addition, not, it's, it's, in addition, he says, it's full of mercy and good works. Or good fruit, he says. So there's, there's a... There's a mercifulness about this wisdom that doesn't just, it's not just mercy discussed, but it's mercy displayed in the way that they act. It's impartial. It doesn't make distinctions or play favorites in the relational spheres that it's connected in, right? So it doesn't go and love and serve somebody to get something from them, but just surely because God's called them to and given them opportunity, right? He says, in addition, uh, it's sincere. It's not just playing a part, Right? It's not hypocritical. It's not putting on a mask and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do these certain kinds of things and act in this particular kind of way in order for people to think that I'm a little better than I actually am. But rather, there's a humility to it. Notice what James says in verse 13. He says, let your good conduct be shown. How? In the meekness or the humility of wisdom. There's a humility about wisdom. It doesn't say, hey, look at me. Look how wise and smart and good I am. But rather, look how wise and smart and how good God is. James says, this is what wisdom looks like, heavenly wisdom. The earthly wisdom, he says, is characterized by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's a stark contrast to the pure and peaceable and openness to reason and gentleness and impartiality and sincerity that James mentions about heavenly wisdom that comes down as opposed to the earthly wisdom that comes up. He says, earthly wisdom that comes up is being driven by a jealousy and bitterness in the heart and a selfish ambition for your own ends and own goals. 
Not wanting to see what God wants produced here, but wanting to see what you want produced here. James says there's a difference in the result as well. He says that earthly wisdom produces a disorder. You ever notice that before? When you're operating in accordance with bitterness in your heart or jealousy uh, in your heart or selfish ambition only concerned about your passions and your pleasures. Have you ever noticed that it creates all kinds of disorder in your life and in the lives of those who are around you and those who are connected to you? I've seen it in life groups. I've seen it in churches. It creates all kinds of disorder. And he says every kind of practice that is dishonoring to God, every kind of vile practice comes out of this earthly wisdom. But he says the heavenly wisdom, it produces a righteousness and a peace that comes from God. There's a stark contrast between these two kinds of wisdom. They couldn't be any starker in the way that James outlines them in the text. And James says, this heavenly wisdom is what you and I need so that there might be peace and righteousness amongst us. So there wouldn't be dissensions and strife and quarrels. Isn't that what he goes on to say further down in the text? In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Why are there all these fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it because of the selfish ambition that lies in your heart, your passions, the bitter jealousy that you're operating out of? James says, as a church, what you need is a heavenly wisdom. It's going to help you navigate these relational contexts. Now, how do I know James is talking particularly about relational context here? Because if you look at what he has just said, right? Just said in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3, what has he talked about? We talked about it last week over in the youth building. He talks about what? Our words, our tongue, doesn't he? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't spend a whole lot of time talking to myself. And when I do, I don't answer myself, all right? There's probably something wrong if that happens, all right? But I don't spend a whole lot of time talking to myself, but I spend a whole lot of time talking to others in the context of relationships. Also, you may say, well, yes, and you fight against sin in you and fight against the flesh within you, but James isn't talking about fighting something in you in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. He's talking about fights and quarrels among you in the relational spheres of the local church. So bookends on both ends of that, our words and how we use them and the kind of quarrels and fights and dissensions that rise up amongst us. And James is saying in the middle of both of those, he's saying you've got to have this heavenly wisdom that is aiming at peace, that's aiming at righteousness, that's aiming at purity, that wants to be gentle in the way that it corrects and instructs, that desires to be open to reason and willing to defer to others when something that's foundational to who we are as Christians and what we believe isn't at stake. you have that kind of wisdom? Not do you talk about that kind of wisdom, but do you operate on the basis of that wisdom? See, my fear is that only, is that, that we, would, we would tend more toward the earthly than toward the heavenly, and we would become just a mirage in the desert of a very thirsty world. So when people came in, they wouldn't find peace-loving righteousness that's gentle and open to reason, but they would come in and they would find bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that creates all kinds of disorder. You've got to have that heavenly wisdom, James says, that is displayed in the way that you act. And James says, if you've got that kind of heavenly wisdom, if that is characteristic of who you are and how you act, because you're looking to God for that, you're looking to God for that, James says, in order to create an oasis here, 
He says, here's what you gotta do. You gotta plant what you wanna harvest. Here's the kind of wisdom you gotta operate with, James says. This heavenly wisdom, he says, you gotta plant what you wanna harvest. Look down in verse 18. Look at what James says. Man, this just jumped off the page at me this week. He says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, we don't typically talk about sowing a harvest, do we? We typically talk about sowing seeds, don't we? So you go out into a field and you sow seeds and you cast these seeds out into the field and then you cultivate those seeds and you care for those seeds and you irrigate those seeds and you fertilize those seeds unless you're organic and you throw a bunch of manure on those seeds, okay? Whatever you do in order to cultivate those seeds and raise those seeds up into a crop that would eventually produce a harvest, but James says, as you plant, you've got to have in your mind what you're wanting to harvest, what you're wanting to come up from the ground. Listen, when my brother and I moved out of the house after uh, we graduated high school, went off to college, um, my brother came back home for a few years, and then he kind of got back out uh, of the house. But after we moved out, man, it's like my parents experienced this newfound freedom they had in order to do all these things that they'd wanted to do for so many years. So my dad, we lived on about an acre of land in South Lake Charles in Louisiana. My dad turned like the back third of his yard into a garden. So my dad's like this green thumb guy watches all these HGTV shows about how to plant and cultivate seeds. And my dad has begun to grow tomatoes and cucumbers and squash and zucchini and you, any kind of vegetable just about you can imagine picking up at Whole Foods. That's what he's growing in his backyard. And he's got this little stand on the side of the road. And as people come by, he's trying to either give it away or sell it. Okay? But he's begun his specialty crop are tomatoes. And my dad can grow, if you like tomatoes, my dad can grow some of the juiciest, most succulent tomatoes. I don't know if tomatoes are succulent, but I'm going to call them succulent, okay? The, 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 the best tasting tomatoes you've ever had, right? You're looking for a good BLT, man, he can give you the tomatoes to make the BLT. It's inc- they're incredible. Right? You slice into them, and they're just, like, there's just juice running out of them. Fl- oh, man, they're so good. Um, but whenever he plants those tomato seeds, right? Right? If, or if he planted cucumber seeds, or if he planted squash seeds, right? you couldn't go out into the garden and where he had planted cucumbers or where he had planted squash and expect to be, be able to pick those vine-ripe tomatoes off of that in several months. Why? Because you didn't plant tomatoes in those rows. You planted cucumbers in those rows. And so what you plant is what you're going to harvest, James says. And you've got to sow, James says, with what you want to reap in mind. And that image is true in agricultural context, but it's true in relational context as well. James says, if you want to reap peace, you want to be one who makes peace, then you've got to sow with a wisdom that's pure. You've got to sow with a wisdom that loves peace and wants to see peace produced. You've got to sow with a wisdom that is gentle. You've got to sow with a wisdom that is uh, open to reason. You've got to sow with a wisdom that is impartial and sincere, James says. You've got to plant what you want to harvest. You can't expect to plant cucumber seeds and harvest tomatoes. You can't expect to plant an apple tree and go and pick freestone peaches that are going to just melt in your mouth. It doesn't work that way, James says. And he says you can't plant seeds of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and expect to reap a harvest of peace in the context of a local church. James says it doesn't work that way. 
What God wants to accomplish, James says, is not going to be accomplished by earthly wisdom that is unspiritual and is actually of its nature demonic. Those are his words. He says it doesn't work that way. He says, rather, if you want to see peace, if you want to see an oasis for a dry and parched world, he says you've got to plant what you want to harvest. And it takes heavenly wisdom to do so, to navigate the relational context, because every local church that I've ever been a part of faces relational strain, doesn't it? Every life group I've ever been in has relational tension at times, every single one of them. And James says, if you want to navigate that well to where you're not a mirage but an oasis, you've got to plant with heavenly wisdom, aiming, aiming at what you want to take up out of the ground one day. So where are we going to get this kind of heavenly wisdom from and how are we going to become these people who plant what we want to harvest? I'll leave you with this. This is what James tells us. He says, if you want to be a one who makes peace, or as, Jane, or as Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 9 in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers, he doesn't say. Not those who just ignore truth and kind of recede into the background and don't actually speak hard truths to people. But the peacemakers who engage in those hard discussions in a way that's gentle and open to reason and peaceable and pure. He says, if you want to be a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper, one who makes peace and sows what they're looking to reap one day, he says, what you've got to realize is you've got to see that this heavenly wisdom is not something that is innate within you, but it's something that's imparted from God. He says, you've got to see that you're not born with this. See, what I don't want people to walk away from this morning that is thinking is this. I don't want you to walk away having come in here and going, man, now I just got to go out and try harder. <laughs> I got to go out and do better. I got to go out and ramp up my effort level in order to maintain relationships in the life of the local church. I don't want you to think that because if you walk out of here thinking that you've got to now go try harder and do better and ramp up your effort level, here's what you're going to walk out and find. So you're going to walk out and find that you're going to fall flat on your face. You might succeed for about a week, but you're just not going to succeed for a lifetime. And here's why. It's because in our natural state, in our fallen state, as those who have chosen to do things our own way, as opposed to God's way, those whose hearts and lives are shot and riddled with sin, in our natural condition, us trying harder to do better is never going to be sufficient because this wisdom that James is talking about isn't something that you're born with, but something that you have to be born again to have. That's what he says back up in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 20, I believe it is, 19, 20, 21, when he says that you've been brought forth by the word of truth. In other words, the gospel is something that has given you new life and you've come to life because Jesus is indeed most precious to you and he has given his life for you and he's given himself to you. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within you. And the Holy Spirit is now beginning to revolutionize and change your life from one who was shot through with bitterness and jealousy and passions and selfish ambition and all kinds of vile practices and disorder producing and coming out of you. The Holy Spirit is now beginning to change you into someone who is pure and peaceable and open to reason and gentle and sincere and impartial. 
Holy Spirit's producing that change, but it's not something that you're doing yourself. It's something that he's doing in you that's coming out of you. But it's got to start somewhere. See, this wisdom isn't something you're born with. It's not something I was, I'm born with. It's something that every day I'm dependent upon God for and something that you've got to be dependent on God for every day as well. See, if you're coming in here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, man, now I just got to go be a lot wiser in the way that I interact with people, you're going to fail miserably. Where you've got to start is saying, I don't know how to interact with people very well. I am come, I've come to the end of myself. I need God in a way that I've never known I've needed him before. I'm absolutely dependent upon God in a way that I've never known that I was dependent upon him before. I want to cast myself at his feet knowing that I can't save myself, but it must be God who saves me through what he's done at the cross in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit then comes to take up residence as you place faith in Jesus and he begins to revolutionize you from the inside out. This list that James talks about here in chapter three sounds eerily familiar to another, another list that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter five when he says, there's some fruit that's being born in your life because of what God is doing in you, that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law. James says here, there's a wisdom that comes from God as his spirit takes residence in our lives that makes the church into an oasis to an oasis as we yield to the Spirit and we're wise about the words that we say and what's driving those words. It's coming from a place not of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy but from a place of purity and peace-lovingness. It's bearing righteousness. See, if we're gonna be the kind of oasis that we long to be, we gotta plant what we wanna harvest. If we don't plant what we wanna harvest, then whenever the people come in looking for fruit on the vine, they may find something that's very spoiled and rotten. And I don't know if you've ever bitten into a piece of fruit that's a little overripe and a little spoiled, but it doesn't leave a good taste in your mouth. And you walk away just as hungry. And you walk away just as thirsty. Plant this week what you want to harvest in these relational spheres, in the life of this church, in the life of your life group. Plant what you want to harvest. Trust in God's wisdom to do it and see what kind of fruit he would bear as a result.